Thank you, Pastor Rip, for praying so well. Thank you. Meet today. So if you don't have a handout, today is a day that I promise you, you'll want a handout. Because we are going to go through a biblical timeline overview. And uh, I know we've been speaking about some details of the end times um, over the past few weeks. We've talked about the rapture a number of weeks ago, then a couple of weeks on the tribulation. Um, but today I, I wanted to just give an overall review. Larry, can I have my slides, please? Um, an overall review of the, the big picture of things so that maybe we can help, this can help us uh, put it in context better of the days we're living in. So um, I have a lot of information. This is the engineer teacher coming out in me big time. And um, so um, it's like a fire hose here. Just glean what you can. And uh, But I hope that you will take this information that I have given here and that you'll take and study it on your own through the week um, because you you learn the most when you study for yourself. Amen? This is, I mean, if, if you think all your, if your whole time is of, of, of getting God's word is from the pastor on Sundays, you're not going to get very much. You'll get it on your own best. So anyway, I found this chart that we're going to go through today. And um, I think this chart helps us describe the events of history as well as the time of the future and I think it's going to really help us as we as we go through this. So follow along, take notes, and um, just take notes of what you want to look at and study more later on your own. So let's start at the beginning. Creation. Creation. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 describes God's creation account. Now, we believe in a, a literal six-day creation. That God created the world and everything in it in six 24-hour days. Now, that's a, that's a miraculous thing to think about that. And I know that that goes against most of the secular teaching and even some Christian teaching about evolution and the way God evolved things over years versus days. But let me just say it this way. If we can accept, listen, this is really important. If you can accept God's power to create, as the Bible says he created in the beginning, then that will help you to believe all of his promises of the future. That God can do in the future what he did in the beginning. That he has the power to create in that miraculous way that he also has the power to bring every promise to bear as well. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 says, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. God clearly was involved in every aspect of creation, and he did it miraculously. So now, like I said, this is a quick review. So now let's talk, let's jump ahead to the fall of mankind. Genesis chapter 3 describes the fall of mankind, and it sets up the battles that are to come. And I think it's easy, too easy for us to make, to, to miss the significance of the battle here. Because after God had conversation with Adam and Eve and got their answer to what happened on that day when they ate of the fruit, then God turned his attention to the serpent, which was Satan. And he established a battle at this point in time with the serpent. 
Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, who is Satan, because you have done this, in other words, because you have tempted my creation, Adam and Eve, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And here's the key. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So what does this mean right here? This is important. Looking at verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall strike his heel. Notice the, the, the word seed. Satan's seed is normal case. And the woman's seed is capital case. What he's really saying here is that the woman's seed is Jesus Christ coming from the Jewish people. Meaning that the battle that's being established here is a seed war. It's a really a battle between Satan and his demonic horde and the woman's seed being Jesus. It has nothing to do with you and I. It has nothing to do with you and I. The battle is between God and Satan. We just happen to be the pawns, right? We're the ones that God loves. And because God loves us, that means Satan hates us. And God, Satan can't, can't destroy God right now, but he can do his best to destroy his creation. That's you and I. And so now we are just pawns in the battle. We're being used and abused by Satan in his battle against God. So I want us to understand that the seed war is the key thing, and we'll come back to that as we go throughout this day. The next major event that happens in biblical history is that Israel is formed and the law is given. Israel, meaning the Jewish people, they they are chosen by God. And this period here describes the Old Testament, and it's the beginning of the Jewish nation and all of its journeys and experiences that it goes through. God calls this people his chosen people. And these people are the, the, the seed will come from these people. The seed, capital C, capital S, seed, Jesus will come from these people, the Jewish people. So God gives the Jewish people significant rules to live by. And he gives them all kinds of guidelines. And he gives them blessings and curses as such. Moses writes the Old Testament Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. Moses writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those are the first five books of the Bible, and this is the law that's given to the Jewish people. And this law is in great detail so that the people know the standards that God expects from them. And this includes the promises and also the blessings if they obey and the curses if they don't obey. It's very conditional. As you read through the account of the Jewish people, you will realize that they go through cycles of obedience, blessings, disobedience, judgment, repentance, and then the cycle repeats over and over again, multiple times through the Jewish history. And that brings the ultimate fall of Israel, which is called the Diaspora. And this is an important milestone in the biblical timeline because the nation of Israel ultimately rebels against God too many times. <laughs> and God's patience runs out. 
even though God is patient, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, his patience is long-suffering, but at the same time, there comes a point in time when he says, enough is enough, and now judgment comes. So uh, the fall of Israel is summarized in in Second Kings chapter 17, the, that chapter. I, invi- I invite you to go back and read that. But let me just top line it for you. It says that basically disaster comes on the people of Israel because they worshipped other gods, because they they put idols and, and, and other things before God that that was a big problem. Despite God's warning, he warned them specific, specifically over and over many, many times. God sent many prophets to warn them, for them to obey their commands. But they were stiff-necked and stubborn, as we know, and ultimately God banishes them from their land and his presence. He banishes them from their land, so he disperses them through the world. Second Kings chapter 17, verses 18 through 20, let me just read this. Because the Lord was very angry with Israel, he swept them away from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah remained in the land. But even the people of Judah refused to obey the commands of the Lord their God, for they followed the evil practices that Israel had introduced. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel. He punished them by handing them over to their attackers until he had banished Israel from his presence. That's pretty serious punishment. And this final fall of Israel... It began around 597 B.C., where the Jews were scattered all over the world and continued up through the birth of Christ. It's interesting to know that by the time Jesus was born, there were more Jewish people living outside of Israel than in it. They were scattered around the world. And this helps us realize how perfect the timing of Jesus' coming was. As I've gone through the study, I'm amazed at the way God always is perfect in his timing. So now we are going to start discussing the timing and the events of Christ's first coming. Ultimately, Christ is coming three times to the world. Three times. This His birth was his first time. The rapture is the second time. The second coming is the third time. And we're going to talk about this, so just be patient. But this is the first time of the three times that Jesus comes to earth. And this time, he comes as a baby. This is Christmas for us. He comes as a baby, lowly and humble, in, in, in circumstances that are ungodly, un, unpriestly, unkingly. He comes in a manger, and he comes to live a perfect life to be a perfect sacrifice for us. So this takes us to Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. So this is a, a lot of things happen in this 33 plus years or so in the life of Jesus. But this is the beginning then of the New Testament time where Jesus now comes to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament regarding his birth and continuing his, his, his life. And this also is a continuation of the seed war that began 4,000 years prior to this. The seed war began in the Garden of Eden, and now it's continuing on. But Jesus' coming is in perfect timing. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the right time came, when the right time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. 
God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. An amazing gift that God is giving us through Jesus. Romans 5, 6 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus came to save all people. All people, Jews and Gentiles alike. So in this time period is the three-year ministry of Christ, the calling of his disciples, Jesus' teachings and his miracles, and this leads up to his death and his resurrection and ultimately his ascension back to heaven. So now this takes us to the ascension time on our timeline. After Jesus dies, he's resurrected, he remains on the earth, making himself known to hundreds of people. Hundreds of people saw Jesus alive after he was crucified on the cross and put into a grave, for a tomb for three days. He was resurrected. He was on earth for a period of 40 days, walking, talking with the fellowship, having fellowship with the disciples, eating with them, fellowshipping with them. That's when he breathed on them and the disciples received the Holy Spirit. That's when they became saved. That's where their, their, their day of salvation came during this time. And after this 40 days, Jesus is taken up to heaven called the Ascension, where he's taken to heaven in front of the disciples. They see him go to heaven. And this is recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says, after he said these things, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid hid him from their sight. They, the disciples, were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. They're angels. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Interesting. Jesus departs in the clouds and Jesus is going to return in the clouds. The same way that he departed, the same way that he ascended is the same way that he's going to come back. And prior to this time when Jesus was with the disciples, he instructed them after he ascended to go and wait in Jerusalem for him to send the power of the Holy Spirit unto them. And that takes us now to, on a timeline, the day of Pentecost. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, which is 50 days after They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And there's a lot that we can talk about on Pentecost, and we have spoken on that in the past. But this now actually begins the church age. This begins the church age. The Apostle Paul describes this time period in this as he writes to the church in Ephesus. And when he writes it, he makes it clear that the intent of Jesus is to give all people, now not just the Jews anymore, because primarily the Old Testament is dealing with the Jews. The New Testament now is including the Gentiles, 
that are saved because the Jews rejected Christ. The Gentiles then are are brought into the picture to try to make the Jews jealous so that the Jews would want what the Gentiles have. And so the fulfilling of the New Testament is really God coming down in the form of the Holy Spirit now, and the Holy Spirit now is resonant on the earth. He's God's active agent on the earth, and he's drawing all people unto him. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, it says that God did not reveal it to previous generations. This is Paul speaking. But now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and the prophets. And this is God's plan. God has a plan, and Paul lays it out for him. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news, what's the good news? The good news is the gospel. Who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. I don't think Paul can make it much more clear as to the plan of God for what he wants to unveil over the next years in the early church. And this is the beginning of the early church and the church age in which we are still part of. We are living on this timeline. We are living in the church age. Now, I think it's pretty obvious to most of us that we're living at the very end of the church age. And we have to remember that even now, as this church age is beginning, the Jews are still scattered all around the world, and they still don't have a country to call their own. The the diaspora still continues after the church was established. And and, And as it went through, the church went through, as we went through the Middle Ages and the persecution of the church and the persecution of the Jews all the way up into our generation. You see, the seed war is still underway. It's still going on. Satan is still at war with all the people, but especially he's at war with the Jewish people. Why is that? Because he wants to destroy the people that the seed, Jesus, is going to come through that is ultimately going to destroy him. He still believes, Satan still believes that he's going to win, but if he can continue to destroy the Jewish people, then the seed war is won by him. So that's why that war that was established in Genesis chapter 3 is so important, because that establishes the whole issue of why we have so much anti-Semitism in today's world, why the world is against the Jews. And why the Jews, the Jewish nation is such an important nation. Because it's the apple of God's eye. It's the focus of God. God's time clock is centered around Israel and the Jewish people. So now we move on to the area, to the time that Israel is reborn. And this is really important. This is a miraculous event that is missed by so many people in and out of the church as, as a major milestone in God's prophetic time clock. This is the thing that kicks the time clock going again. Because this is when God, this was prophesied. This was prophesied by the, by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel hundreds of years ago. In fact, Jeremiah, that I'm going to read in a minute, was written around 585 to 580 BC. That's 585 years before Christ. 
Ezekiel was written around 590 years to 570 years B.C., even further back. And this is what Jeremiah says, speaking about the fact that God will rebuild his nation, will recall them to his own country, into their own country. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 7 and 8. In that day, says the Lord, when people are taking an oath, they will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who rescued the people out of Israel from the land of Egypt. Okay, he's going back and he's establishing the fact that God already has before rescued them from bondage and brought them into the promised land. Instead, they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the people of Israel back to their own land, from the land of the north and from all the countries to which he had exiled them, then they will live in their own land. So Jeremiah is prophesying that there's going to come a day when the nation of Israel will have its own country again. Again, this is 500 years before Christ was born, which means it was just, which is 2,000 years added into that, right? Then Ezekiel 37, verses 21 and 22, Ezekiel says, And give them this message from the Sovereign Lord. I will gather the people of Israel from among the nations. I will bring them home to their very own land from the places where they have been scattered and I will unify them into one nation on the mountain of Israel. Why is this so important? And when did this happen? This happened on May 14th, 1948. David Ben-Gurion, the chairman of the Jewish Agency for Palestine, announced the formation of the new state of Israel. God determined that he would gather his people and plant them back into their own land that he had chosen. And this was a supernatural event because this happened in one day. And why is that insignificant? Because Isaiah, who prophesied 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, said this, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8 through 10, who has ever seen anything as strange as this? Who ever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? But by the time Jerusalem's birth pains begin, her children will be born. Immediately, within a day, the birth pains begin, she's born. Who, I, who would I ever bring this nation to the point of birth and then not deliver it, says the Lord? No, I would, re, I would never keep this nation from being born, says your God. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Basically, Isaiah is prophesying that Jerusalem, when the exile is over, within one day, they will become a nation. And that's exactly what happened. May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation. Do you see the significance of that? Do we see how important that is on God's timeline? Many people don't see it. They just go by that. But that's significant because that begins us, that tells us that we are in the last days. That is the beginning of God's time clock. Again, the generation that sees this come to pass will see all things come to pass. And this was the key event. Which then takes us now to the second coming of Christ. The next biblical prophecy to come to pass is the second coming of Christ. Now, this can be broken down into two steps or two phases. So listen very closely so don't get confused. The first step in Christ's second coming is the rapture of the church. 
the first step of his second coming is the rapture of the church. This is one that where he's like he ascended into the clouds. He's going to come back in the clouds. And we're going to talk about the rapture in a little bit. We've already talked about it in the past. But the second step in Christ's second coming is Christ's return to the earth after the tribulation is completed. And he's coming then to deal with the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan. And then that's at what point he'll establish his 1,000-year millennial reign. So let's talk about the next event that will happen on God's time clock is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. Now we've talked about this already in the weeks past, but this is a silent event. This is a selective rapture. This is for the church only. Who is the church? You and I. Believers in Christ who accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and then make him our Lord. We are the church. We're the bride of Christ that the New Testament talks about. And Jesus is coming back for his bride. And then he will take them from the from this earth. The world will not know it until after the fact. And it's going to happen instantaneously. All the world will see is just a pile of clothes, driverless cars, whatever. We're gone. The church is gone to be with Christ for the next seven years in heaven while the tribulation begins at the signing of the peace treaty, which we'll talk about in a minute. But Paul describes this event, this rapture of the church. He describes it to those in, of the church of Thessalonica. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 8 through 18 says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. That's the rapture, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus does not come to earth here. Jesus stays in the air in the clouds and the church and those dead who have passed before the church, they have dead Christ before. They will rise first and the church will instantly be right behind them and we will meet Christ in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the time of encouragement. This is the blessed hope that we have today. That no matter how out of control this world is, God's still in control. Then this takes us to the tribulation time period. And this is the time described in great detail in the Scripture. Both Old Testament and New Testament passages spend a lot of time talking about the tribulation. They're given in Jeremiah 30, Daniel 9, and Revelations chapters 6 through 18. I'm not going to go back and dig into this today because we've talked about it. The last two weeks we were talking about the tribulation. But I encourage you to go back and read these on your own. Understand what's happening here. At this time, the Antichrist will come on the world scene as a powerful world leader. After the rapture of the church, the Antichrist will come on the scene. He's not revealed yet, but after the church is taken away, before the tribulation begins, the Antichrist will be made known and he will come onto the world scene and he will be able to successfully explain the departure of millions of people what happened to all these people that left the earth? The Antichrist will come up with a, he'll come up with a solution. You can kind of see it already, can't you? Can't you see the, already the inklings of it? 
I mean, I have a philosophy, and I, I mean, it's not my idea. I've seen it very obvious. I think UFOs are a big part of it. There's a big interest right now with unidentified flying objects, and their government is even admitting the fact that they're real. Now, what are these events? I don't think they're really beings from outer space. I think they're interdimensional beings, which means they're in the other spirit world that we can't see that make themselves seen. I think they're demonic manifestations of some type that are setting the world stage for the fact that when the rapture happens, all the bad people, which would be the church, the ones that are unprogressing, right? The progressives, we're not, we're not progressing in what the world's culture like the world is. So we'll be removed from the earth because we're not progressing and we're holding back the one world government. We're holding back what the Antichrist wants to establish. And I think he will be able to spin a great story as to what happened to those that were left in the rapture, that were taken in the rapture. The Antichrist then will establish good relationships with Israel. Remember, the seed war is still ongoing. He will establish good relationships with Israel, and he will sign a seven-year peace treaty with the nation of Israel, and he will bring a, a some type of a, of a sense of peace on the world, in the world at that time. And this will be the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, not the rapture. There's going to be some period of time between the rapture and the, and the tribulation beginning and the signing of this peace treaty. But it's the signing of the peace treaty that really starts it, kicks it off. And then it'll be a whole different time. So after the tribulation, after all those events, that take place in a tribulation, which we've talked about numerous times, numerous already. And you can go back, and I really encourage you to go back and read those three passages that I gave you. Then the thing that, that ends that part will be the second part of Christ's coming, and that is the return of Christ. And this is the second phase where Jesus actually returns to earth. The first phase of the second coming was when Jesus stayed in the clouds, just took the church and the bride of Christ and it was silent. The world didn't know it. But this time when Christ comes, as we're going to describe here, it's a much different format because when Jesus comes the second time to earth, everyone sees him. The world sees him and they will either welcome him as the king or they will quake in fear for the judgment that's coming. Jesus describes this in Matthew chapter 24. This is Jesus speaking. He's describing his second coming. So if Jesus is describing this, I think you can recognize it's going to happen the way Jesus describes it, right? Why would he describe it differently than what it's going to be? Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 29, Jesus says, immediately after the distress of those days, the distress of those days after the after the seven year tribulation, especially the last three and a half years of the of the tribulation, which was the great tribulation, after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, 
from one end of the heavens to the other. This is when Christ returns to earth to bring his judgment on the Antichrist and the false prophet and all those that rejected him during this time period. The armies of earth will be gathered together for a final battle in the battle of Armageddon and they will be destroyed. Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 21 describes this in great detail. So I'm going to read this. Read along with me. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. That, that rider is Jesus. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Verse 12, or 14, I'm sorry. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, that arm, the armies of heaven are the church. Notice how the word described in other places in Scripture, and I didn't go back and reference it, but the bride of Christ were described as wearing fine linen, white and clean. So the armies of heaven, we are coming back, following Christ at the second coming. We're following him, going to witness the events that happen after the tribulation when Jesus comes back to judge the world. I don't know about you, but I get pretty excited about that. I'm looking forward to that. I wonder where I'm going to be in that procession. I wonder what horse I'm riding because I'm going to be one of them. And so are you. If you're, if you're, if you're living for Jesus now, if you are taken in a rapture, that's your future. You're going to be part of the army that's going to come back and you're going to witness Jesus handling the issues that have to happen at the tribu- after the end of the tribulation. Let's continue reading. Verse 15. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come together, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. What he's describing there is the carnage of the, of the battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist is going to gather the, the, the armies of the world together and Jesus is going to slay them with a sword coming out of his mouth. If you can understand what that looks like, it's going to be some type of horrific event. And all the people that reject Christ, that have taken the mark of the beast, which we've talked about, will be slayed before them, and it will just be a bloodbath. Because it says that the fury of the wrath of God Almighty is being poured out. We serve a mighty God, folks. We serve a mighty God that's love and patience and long-suffering, But when the wrath comes out, it comes out because he is justified in his wrath. He's the creator of all things, and he will be the ultimate judge, and he has every right to do everything that he's described here. He's not being unrighteous here. This is a righteous judgment that's being described. 
Verse 19, then I saw the beast, which is the false prophet and the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Verse 20, but the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider, who was Jesus, on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So that's the events at the end of the tribulation with Christ's second coming. After this major event, there will be a time period that's given in Daniel that, you, that, that God uses to take care of the business at, ha- at hand as he's preparing for the millennial reign. Daniel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. He says, From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, basically that's the midpoint of the tribulation, there will be an additional 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. Now, there are some interesting words here. The, the, the tribulation is seven years. Three and a half years is 1,260 days. The first half is 1,260 days. The second half is 1,260 days. But Daniel's talking about 1,290 days. Then 1,335 days. Where these days come from? Well, this is the period of time between the 1,200, 30 days after Jesus comes back and takes care of the, the, the millennial reign. Then he basically has to clean up Israel. He's got some work to do because it's a carnage. And then the remaining 45 days is really the time of the judgment of the sheep and the goats. This is when he's preparing the Gentile nations to determining who's going to go into who's going to go into the millennial reign and who's not. We'll talk about that in more detail. But in summary, then this is what happens in the tribulation events. Sometime after the rapture of the church, the Antichrist enters a treaty with Israel, and this begins a seven-year treaty. This begins a seven-year tribulation at the midpoint of the tribulation, which is twelve hundred and sixty days. The Antichrist breaks the treaty, desecrates the temple and begins to persecute the Jews. In other words, the peace treaty's off. Now it's full-fledged war. At the end of the tribulation, which is 1,260 days, after the desecration of the temple, which is the midpoint, Jesus returns to earth, as we've described it, and he defeats the forces of the Antichrist. During the next 30 days, which is leading, which is the 1,290 days we're talking about, that Israel is rebuilt and the earth is restored. And then during the next 45 days, or 1,335 days that Daniel talked about, that then the Gentile nations are judged for their treatment of Israel. And this determines if they're sheep or goats. The sheep nation. And then the millennial reign begins, and it will last for a 1,000 years. So now we go to the millennial kingdom. So just prior to the point of the millennial kingdom being established is when God binds Satan and all of his demons and he casts them into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, who was the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. 
the angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations any more until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be re- he must be released for a little while. So what happens here? The world will be remade from the disaster of the seven-year tribulation. It will be repopulated with the surviving Jewish remnant, the nation that has actually claimed Christ and saw him as the Messiah, and the Gentile or the sheep nations that came out of the sheep and goats judgment that survived to the end of the tribulation. And they will enter this thousand-year year reign as mortals. They will be humans. They will be people. They will be in their flesh like we are right now. The raptured church, us, and the Old Testament saints that were resurrected at the end of the tribulation, we will be into that thousand-year reign in our spiritual bodies, our eternal bodies, like Christ is in his eternal body. And we will reign with Christ over the mortals for a thousand-year period of time. Life will be perfect. It will be just as Jesus created it to be. Jesus will be the king. It will not be a democracy. It will be a theocracy. It will be a kingdom where Jesus rules with an iron scepter. And we are there ruling with him. The earth will repopulate. And there will be millions and millions of people, maybe billions of people. I mean, a thousand years is a long time. We are only America for less than 250 years. So four times the length of our nation will be a perfect environment where there will be no temptation. There will be the devil will be banished. It will be utopia. It will be beautiful. It will be perfect. But at the end of that thousand years, Satan is released again. So Satan has one last stand. Here's the thing that we have to think about. All of the people that were born in that thousand-year period of time will never really appreciate the power of choice like we appreciate the power of choice. They will be born in a time when Satan doesn't exist. They will have no tempter. They will have no evil. They're born into a perfect environment. They've been living in a perfect world with a perfect king with no temptation to sin because Satan has been locked up. So they don't understand what it means to be tempted. They don't understand what it means to choose Christ over a tempter the way we do today. The way we prove our love to Jesus is because we have a choice to love him or not love him. In the millennial reign, that choice will not be there. So there has to come a choice for these people. That's a simplistic reason why the devil, why the devil has to be released for a short time at the end of this thousand-year period because he will go into the worlds and he will go trying to deceive as many as he can. And the reality is many people will still choose Satan over Christ, even after a thousand years of perfect rule. That just shows the the evil in human nature. Even without the tempter, we are evil in our nature because of the fallen nature of Adam and Eve's sin. That doesn't leave the people. Satan is banished, but the nature of mankind is not. They have to be given a chance to choose Christ as their Savior, the way we're given a chance to choose Christ, if they're going to move into the new heavens and the new earth. 
Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 and 10 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. That's how many people that he will gather. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. That's, that's talking about us. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That will be the end of the millennial period. And then comes the great white throne judgment. And up to this point in time, all the people that have rejected Christ in this point in time, they are in hell, which is a temporary holding place, if you will, but it's a place of punishment and torment because of their own choosing, all right, because they didn't choose Christ. But every man will be resurrected, man and woman will be resurrected again, and this time they will stand before God and they will acknowledge him as God. This is when they, every knee will bend, every knee will, will, will worship God, but they will really realize who he is and they will have to give an account for the choices they've made to reject Christ. And this is the unbeliever's day of punishment, the unbeliever's day before God, where they will have their day before God. You say, well, every, every religion leads to God? Yes, it does. <laughs> this will be their day before God. If they rejected Christ, they're not coming to Christ to be rewarded. They're not coming to God to be rewarded. They're coming, they're going to stand before God to be judged, to be thrown into the lake of fire that Satan's already been thrown into. Revelations 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the death that, dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's it. Finally, it's over. The world is done. Mankind is over. The, the time that we have is done. The seed war that began in the Garden of Eden is finally won by God. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Satan has been defeated forever. Satan struck the heel of God through the fall of mankind, but God crushed the head of Satan at the end of the thousand-year reign just prior to the great white throne judgment. The battle is finished. Revelation 20.10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning fire where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen, hell is not a party. Hell is not a time to go be with your friends and party hardy. No, it's a time of eternal torment, eternal punishment. This is the final judgment that forever banishes Satan. And evil never will be present again on the new heavens and the new earth. And that takes us to the final thing, which is the best thing ever. Jackie, would you come, please? Revelation 21, 1-4 describes the new heavens and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the old earth 
and the old heaven had passed, had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be with his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That's the new heavens and a new earth. And then, guys, listen. Your mind cannot even begin to comprehend. As Pastor Rip already said, we just see such a slice, only a slice of what God has prepared for us. Even going through this is just a slice of what God has prepared for us. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be beyond your wildest imagination. We then come back to earth and we live on the new heavens and a new earth here on earth in our eternal heavenly bodies will be limitless, just like Christ's body is limitless today. And it'll be forever and ever and ever. And no more sin, no more temptation, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more saying goodbyes. It's going to be unbelievable. And here it is. It's our choice today to receive it. And that's the thing that this world misses. And I think that when you have a, when you have a hard day, stop thinking about your hard day and start thinking about this. Start thinking about where you're going. Start thinking about your inheritance. Start thinking about the joy that's ahead of you. And stop worrying about today because this day isn't last for long. No matter how many years you're on earth, it's not going to last long compared to eternity. So don't worry about today. Don't hold so tightly to this world that, 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 that you're in the multi grubs, that you're depressed. No, think about this. Think about the good things that God has in store. And then share with your family. Share it with your friends. If you really believe it, share it. If you really believe it, share it. Why would you not? Why would we not want everyone to experience this? I find this to be extremely exciting and extremely peaceful at the same time. I can look around me and I see the world out of control. And I can have peace in it. I don't like what I see. I don't like the lies that I've been told. Yeah, my flesh is still fighting, still standing up against it. I don't like it. But I know God has it in control. And I know that these things have to happen according to these plans that he's laid out. Therefore, I don't stress over it. And I pray this encourages all of us to make our hearts right with Christ today and that we can live truly the abundant life and the obedient life that God requires of us. Because if we do that, I hope you got a glimpse of what's in store. I know we've talked about a lot of things here today, but I hope you can glean from here. I hope you let the Holy Spirit just impress on your heart what God has in store for all of us. Amen. Just close your eyes with me and let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your words. I thank you, Lord, for the promises that you have in store for us. I thank you, Lord, that you've laid it out very clear for us. If we would just take the time to dig into your word 
God, and it's not that we have to understand it because there's many things that I don't understand here. But God, I believe it. If I believe you created the world in six days, I believe that you can do all of this that we've been describing exactly the way you would have it done. (laughs) You're not limited in any way, shape, or form just because I can't understand it. So God, I trust you. And it gives me great peace because I, when I accept Jesus into my life, I am now, I am in the family of God and I am going to be, I'm going to be in that great army. I am going to celebrate as a bride the seven year feast in heaven while the earth is going through great turmoil and distress. I'm going to have the joys of heaven forever. So God, I pray that we would all grasp that. I pray, God, that our hearts would grasp that and it would encourage us. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. We need to sing the song that Jack and Tom are playing. This is a good song. Amen. Leave today. Go home today.
Be encouraged today. Go home and read, reread that information. Study it on your own and be encouraged by it. We got, we're living in great days, guys. We are the chosen generation to live this day. God has pointed you to live this day, not five years ago, not 50 years ago, not 100 years ago, but today for a purpose. What is it? Find your purpose. Find your purpose. Spread the good news. God has appointed you to do something great for him today. Amen? Amen. Be blessed. Be blessed as you go. Have a great day.